0: and get your Bible out, turn to 1 Peter 5, and I'm going to manually go back here, and then when I'm done, I will manually go back to the invitation song. I'm surprised in all these uh, years I've I've not made that mistake before, but uh, here we are. 1 Peter 5. So I've got, a, I've got a few sermon ideas hanging around um, in my head. And I think the best way to describe it would be the British word cheeky, uh, cheeky sermon titles. One of them I've, I've uh, shared with you before when we studied Jonah was uh, worst prayers ever. Uh, what are the worst prayers recorded in the Bible? And Jonah is going to make that list for me. Uh, another one of those ideas is, uh, is least favorite Bible verses. Um, everyone's got their most favorite, their most loved Bible verses, the ones you cross-stitch and hang on the wall, the ones we post on Facebook, the ones we quote all the time. Okay, but I'm interested in what our least favorite verses are and just diving into those. Um, What are the least shared verses? What are the scariest verses? Um, This isn't that sermon, but here are just a few possible candidates we might have for that. Ecclesiastes 12:14 God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. I don't think that's many people's favorite. The thought of judgment and God bringing out into the open every secret and evil thing. It's a, it's a scary thought. I think one of the most ominous sections of the entire Bible. I can't really boil it down to a single verse. But Romans chapter 1 is a pretty chilling chapter. Um, the second half of it at least where Paul excoriates a world that has turned its back on God against what God created them to do in every way they know how. And the refrain of the last part of that chapter is a very scary phrase. It says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Again, it says, God gave them up to dishonorable passage. Again, it says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do. And what What this chapter is saying over and over again is if people decide they'd really like to go their own way, if people decide they'd really like to live without God and do what they want, at a certain point, God stops resisting and says, okay, have it your way. And that's a very scary thought. What about Matthew 7.21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on in a few, few words. And that day many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a scary thought on Judgment Day. There will be people who said, I did all this stuff. I thought I was serving you. And Jesus says, no, you weren't. Well, one more candidate, which we, which we talked about a little bit last week, is 1 Peter 5. Start with me in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So far, so good. But verse 8 says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So while the central message of this text is quite encouraging, cast your cares on God, um, fight, resist the devil, and God will help you win. But that bit in verse 8 about what the devil is like and what he's doing in the world is quite scary. He is prowling like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It speaks of the devil's appetite, his appetite for souls to devour, his skill in hunting down his human prey and his power in doing that. And so not only is the devil very real, he is also very fierce and very powerful. The thought of such a being existing and being active in our world, trying to infiltrate our minds, our homes, our churches, our children, It is downright frightening. Uh, In his passage about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, Paul wants to drive home that the devil and his agents are, are not to be taken lightly. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The New Testament says over and over again the devil is real and powerful and scary. Last week, we talked about his efforts to influence and infiltrate churches. But today, I want us to focus on something else that's true about the devil that I think is worth saying, which is while he is potent, he is not omnipotent. While he is potent, he is not omnipotent. While he is powerful, he is not all powerful. That the devil's power is strictly limited. Let me just show you two quick passages which speak to his limits. This is Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to destroy the devil. He began to do that on the cross by taking the fangs out of the most powerful tool the devil wields, which is the power of death. When he rose from the dead, The, the fangs were taken out of death. Which means, the Hebrew writer says, Christians are liberated from fearing the most fearsome tool of the devil. If his most powerful tool has been rendered powerless and temporary, we need not fear the devil. We need not give in to his temptations under threat of death because threat of death isn't so threatening to us anymore. And so the devil is powerful, he has the power of death, but the fangs have been taken out of that powerful tool. What about Revelation 20 and verse 1? When in the vision, John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's a lot going on in this context, but I just want to show you this. With the curtain of the heavenly realm peeled back, we get a picture of what becomes of the devil when God decides to do something. And what we get here is the devil being bossed and kicked around by an angel. When God decides to do something decisive against the devil, the devil is powerless to stop it. He must do. He must, he must bend. And so while we need to take the devil seriously, Why we need to take his wiles seriously and not lightly, we do not need to worry that he can do everything he wants because, in fact, he can't. So what I want us to think about this morning is what the devil cannot do. We talked last week about what the devil is trying to do and what the devil will do if we let him. Today, I want us to think about what the devil cannot do. As you know, this is already a four-point sermon. So point number one, the devil cannot steal you away from God without your consent. This is John chapter 10. John chapter 10. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you become one of his children, one of his disciples, you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus. And Jesus says, as long as you stay there within that flock, continuing to live under the authority of Jesus, relying on his blood, correcting your course along the way, as long as that is happening, God will keep you safe. When you're in fellowship with God, we receive protection from the devil so that he cannot steal you away from God without your consent. This is John 10 and verse 27. John 10 and verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so Jesus says, My sheep are those to hear my voice and follow me, verse 27. That's the definition of Jesus' sheep. We follow him. And when we demonstrate ourselves to be Jesus' sheep, when we continue to walk with him, we are promised in verse 28, eternal life and security, that no one will snatch us out of Jesus' hand. No wolf or thief can take one of Jesus' sheep because they're more powerful or more cunning than Jesus'. Verse 29 says the father is totally on board with this protection plan of Jesus' sheep. That every promise the son makes in verse 28 is backed by the father in verse 29. Father and son are on the same page. And so the power, the promise of Jesus is backed by the power of God. We could combine statements like these with others that speak of God's perfect protection of his flock. And the 23rd Psalm is is a prime example where we are told, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The good shepherd is with his sheep. And in the psalm, he is wielding the rod, which is the instrument of protection, the thing that would be used to beat back roaring lions seeking someone to devour, as well as the staff, which is the instrument of rescue, to to fish a sheep out of a a hole or, or from a thicket. And so the point is, as, as fierce and scary as the devil may be, there is absolutely no reason to fret if you are following Jesus. There is never some sort of surprise attack where all of a sudden the devil has you taken against your will out of the family of God and into his lair. Now, he wants to do that. He has the mind of a thief. But he cannot do whatever he wants. The New Testament gives plenty of assurances to this effect. Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Or Hebrews 13 and verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So know this about the devil. He cannot just steal you out of the family of God. Now, it is possible for someone to leave of their own volition to leave the family of God. God does not lock us in against our will. We have our will. But if our volition, if our will remains aimed at Jesus, the devil cannot steal us away from God without our permission. Jesus tells us this that we may take heart and to be encouraged and to go forth in confidence and not in fear. Which brings us to number two. Here's something else the devil cannot do the devil cannot make you sin. This is 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10. Now to be sure, if you want to sin, if you think about it enough, if you fantasize it about it enough, if you dream about it, if you flirt with it, if you inch up to it, the devil can certainly help tempt you and help nudge you over the edge. He will show you all the things you want to see, all the things you want to be true. He will show you every lie that he can to get you to sin. And once you get there by your choices, he can entice you to stay there and make it very hard for you to get out. But if you are dead set against sin, in the language of Romans 6, if you are dead to sin, the devil cannot make you. As one man said, appropriating the phrase, he said, the devil can lead you to water, but he cannot make you drink it. Let Let me ask it this way. Can you name one case in the entire Bible where the devil or a demon made someone sin who did not want to. Can you name one case in the Bible where someone sinned against their will? I'll give you a minute. Now, you may think of demons in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to a lesser degree in Acts. But, but, but in those books, the demons are able to cause people to do strange things, to possess them, if you will. Though I'll add, it's unclear how, how that happens in the first place. There are some who argue that demons cannot possess someone against against their will to an extent. But demon possession aside, is there a case where a good person who wants to do right before God cannot do it, finds it impossible to do it because of a demon or the devil? I am not aware of such a case. Uh, if you have an instance, let me know and then I'll alter my sermon. Um, but for the life of me, I can't find one. Here, here is a promise made to Christians. 1 Corinthians 10 in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He has been talking about Israel and their history of sin, and uh, basically they laid out the roadmap. If you want to leave God, it always sort of goes this way. It goes within gratitude and complaining and then finding something else. Because we're so ungrateful about God, we we seek fulfillment and meaning in other places. This is the common pattern of temptation. And so he says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Here is what's always true, though God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation is common, but sin is never compelled by it. We can also show that about Israel in the wilderness. Time and again, he offers them chances to repent. They refuse those offers. But God says, I have always and will always provide the way of escape. Which means, of course, the old joke is dead wrong. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He cannot make you do it. He can show you, perhaps, why, why you should want to do it. He can entice you with it. but He cannot make you do it. The devil cannot make you sin. Which brings out number three which is the devil cannot wipe out God's word. This is 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. I think you'll agree with me that uh, prominent in the world today is fear. Um, Fear is something that is just driving a lot of people these days. We're afraid of lots of stuff. Um, What will happen to the country will happen to the home to to the family to marriage Um, how far will churches go in in apostasy what will happen with health care with the economy with terrorism with pandemics with government intrusions Um, the extent to which fear is warranted about any of those i'll let you decide but here is one thing you need never fear don't ever be afraid that the devil will wipe out god's word successfully in 2 Timothy 2, Paul is urging Timothy to be a good soldier of Jesus. And he tells them this, Tells them this, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with change as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul reminds Timothy no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens to him, no matter what evil befalls righteous Christians, even as Paul himself is bound and changed, the word of God can never, ever, ever be bound up. Now, people have tried desperately in history to do just that, the devil ultimately. People have tried to destroy God's word in quite literal ways, Bible burnings. They have tried to, uh, to, to persecute and kill messengers who preach that word and disciples who are trying to live that word. And usually you know what happens in those cases when uh, when the persecution of, of God's people ramps up. The message just spreads all the more. When you try to imprison Paul, for example, for preaching the gospel, Paul just preaches the gospel to the prison guard. And, and then the rest of his brethren, as, as he also says, the rest of his brethren witness his boldness in persecution and they are emboldened to keep preaching wherever they are. If this is the sort of thing worth suffering and dying for, Then man, maybe we should embrace it too. And then when someone is martyred, often what the Christians say is, it's just proof that we're being counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. As uh, as, uh, Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So the devil may be able to discourage you from opening your Bible. He may put distractions that help get in the way of you reading your Bible and thinking about it. He may be able to keep you from applying God's word by deluding you about how this doesn't apply to me or whatever. But the devil cannot stop God's word from being read, from being distributed, from being preached. He never has done it. Just suppose with me that all the Bibles in the world were confiscated and all the printing of Bibles ceased. Um, Bible presses shut down, all existing copies destroyed, Um, totally wiped off the internet. None of this is very likely. But even then, could the devil claim victory? What about, for example, the volumes of published works which quote the Bible, from which we could piece together the entire Bible? What what about all the verses and stories that Christians have memorized? I know brethren that have entire books of the Bible memorized. We could probably, I bet, assemble about a 100 a hundred thoughtful Christians, a hundred good Bible students, and put the New Testament together from memory among the hundred of them. And most important, what about the Bible knowledge we have, where we continue to remember and apply it to our lives, even if we don't have the book open in front of us? He could never take that away. Paul's point is this. They can do just about anything they want to me, but the Word of God cannot be bound. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Or as Isaiah wrote, and Peter quotes in 1 Peter 1, all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. There is a permanence to God's word which is not even found in nature, Isaiah says. The devil cannot wipe out God's word. Finally, number four. The devil cannot give you anything good. This is uh, Luke 15. Luke 15. Th- there are people who are convinced and deceived into thinking that the devil is, is the answer to their problems. Now, when we put it that way, it sounds absurd. No one ever says that, that I think the devil's the answer to my problems. But it happens that people can reach a place in life where they are restlessly seeking for something that is not God. And often it's a, it's a running away from God. And in that state of restlessness, seeking for something other than God that's going to make them whole, that's going to give them fulfillment, the devil is always right at hand offering literally anything other than God. It doesn't, so matter, doesn't matter so much what it is as long as it's not God. They start thinking, people start thinking that life would be better if they walked out on God and his people, if they, if they could just strike out on some great and free adventure where they could do whatever they wanted with impunity. And what follows that is never good. And what follows is never that they find exactly what they're looking for and live happily ever after. That's never how the story ends. Whether it's in sexual liberation or in intoxication, whether it's in freedom from responsibility, whether it's the ability to indulge in things God God defines as sinful. The devil convinces people there is a better life out there in those things, and it is never found. Jesus told a story very much like what I've been describing. This is Luke 15 and verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So here's the good life. Get all the money that I can and then go spend it in, uh, in recklessly and, uh, in maximizing my fun. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And, when he went, and, and so he went and hired himself out to the, one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf calf, and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Here's a story of a man who thought there was a richer, fuller life if he could just walk away from his father. And that's exactly what he did. But the story says he came to himself in the hog pen. One translation says, simply, he realized he had been foolish. And he seeks to recover all he had resolved that he had given up. One reason Jesus tells this story is that so we could see the result of wasteful living before we make the waste, The devil promises this adventure, this excitement, this temporary happiness, but ultimately it is an empty promise, or there's always a morning after for it, that the devil can never give us anything that is truly, lastingly good. It is God, Jesus says, who offers us anything that is eternally valuable. It is accepted by and kept through the activity of faith in Jesus. But the devil offers you nothing positive, Nothing good, nothing you truly need, nothing worth walking away from God to get, nothing worth forfeiting eternity with God. God, through Jesus, offers everything good and everything positive and everything you need. And what God offers is of such value that it is always worth it to say no to the devil every single day in in ways big and small. So the devil walking around like a roaring lion is quite a scary verse. But as fierce and evil and wily as the devil is, he is not all-powerful. In fact, when you get into God's flock, when you begin to understand the power of the shepherd, when you grow in your relationship to the good shepherd, actually the devil starts looking a a little bit laughable and a little bit wimpy. Not that we want to underestimate him. But you realize there are things he cannot do that he could never take us away from God without our consent, and he could never make us sin, only tempt us to do so. He could never wipe out God's word, and he could never give you anything good. And So the question is, as we transition to the invitation song, here we go. The question is, Will you follow the one who is truly omnipotent? Will you resist the devil? If you desire anything that is truly and eternally good, that's exactly what you need to do, to forsake the devil who is ultimately weak and impotent and to pursue the omnipotent God. If there's anyone who needs to come to repent of your allegiance to Satan, to giving in to his temptations, and want to come and give your life over to the all-powerful God, come for it now as we stand and sing. Live for Jesus, wandering sinner, under Satan's Lord Of the promised prize of winner, thou mayst be when life is o'er. Live for Jesus, live for Jesus, give him all that has to give on the cross the world.